This is episode number 241 with Dr. Guillermo Cecchi from IBM Research. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. My name is Kirill Eremenko, data science coach and lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build your successful career in data science. Thanks for being here today. And now let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast. Super excited to have you on the show. And today we've got a very special guest, uh, Dr. Guillermo Cecchi from IBM Research. So what did we talk about in this podcast? Well, Dr. Cecchi specializes in computational linguistics and over the past couple of years has pioneered approaches to quantify psychiatric and mental conditions from speech samples. A very exciting field and Dr. Cecchi's research is applied to conditions as diverse as schizophrenia, mania, prodromal psychosis, drug and alcohol intake. In this podcast, you'll find out how data science and artificial intelligence are pushing the boundaries of healthcare and specifically mental healthcare and what can be done there. Some very interesting approaches which extract data and insights from audio samples of patients' voices and uh, their speech. You'll also learn about a couple of interesting techniques, specifically one about transferring intuitive knowledge that professionals in this field have into algorithms. And uh, finally, towards the end of the podcast, we'll have a bit of a debate about technology and the brain and things like Neuralink and evolution and where the world is going in the next couple of years. So quite an exciting podcast, especially if you're in the space of science or you're interested in things like how the brain works and natural language processing and its application in healthcare. So on that note, without further ado, I bring to you Dr. Guillermo Cecchi from IBM Research. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Super excited to have you on the show. And today I've got a very special guest with me calling in from New York, Guillermo Cecchi. Guillermo, welcome. How are you going today? Uh, very good. Uh, warmer than last week. <laughs> yeah, we chatted about that just now. How cold did it get last week? Uh, minus 16, uh, minus 18 Celsius. So wow, minus 16. It, what is that in Fahrenheit? Oh, uh, so one day it was close to one or two Fahrenheit. Wow. Three Fahrenheit. I mean, it was, uh, yeah, it was something. Did all of New York stop for that time? Uh, no. No? <laughs> yeah. Um, I was talking to um, a, a friend of mine in um, the UK, and they had like a similar situation where they actually had snow. I think it was last week. And they, the whole city just came to a halt because they are not just not used to having snow there at all. So yeah, crazy weather these days. All right. Well, Guillermo, very excited to have you on the podcast. Uh, you're a, um, you're with IBM research and you're in an, an extremely exciting area, which is 
uh, research of the brain and psychology, psychiatry, and on the in the connection with technology, data science, artificial intelligence. So super, super pumped about that. Uh, could you give us a quick rundown of your background? Because you started all the way in physics, and now you are in uh, data science, artificial intelligence, and uh, brain and psychiatric research. How did that go? How did your journey unfold? Could you please give us a quick overview? Uh, well, yeah, it's really, you never know, right? Uh, I started as a physicist, but I always had a, a keen interest in um, philosophy. And I actually, uh, before coming to the US to do my PhD in physics, I was doing a, um, I was taking master courses in philosophy. So that naturally led me to to brain science and in my PhD while I was doing uh, uh, things in physics, I was actually working at the interface between physics and biology and then physics and neuroscience. Um, and then I did a postdoc in psychiatry at uh, uh, Cornell Medical Center, also in the city. And um, when I joined IBM, I joined a group that was doing uh, uh, brain-inspired uh, computational models, so I kept working also in in uh, neuroscience. And then at some point, I had the opportunity of uh, uh, getting access to uh, language data, in particular, from uh, mental health patients. And this is when you know I, I started to dedicate most of my time. Uh, to this, right? So it's uh, the background, it's uh, uh, what led me to uh, this confluence of uh, psychiatry, uh, neuroscience, and you know, data science, mathematics, computer science. Right? So being in IBM, naturally, I'm surrounded by computer scientists, so that's uh, that's a given. Mm -hmm. um, so that's you know, in a nutshell, mm -hmm. <laughs> the background. What I find really interesting is the the way you moved from physics to through some um, exploration of philosophy, you moved into um, a postdoctoral in psychiatry. So that, from from my perspective, that requires a lot of courage, like completely changing your direction in life. Just could you comment on that, like? How how did you feel about that move? Were you um, were you nervous that you know like you're completely ch shifting your career? Or were you uh, excited and not even thinking twice about getting into uh, something that you can see that you're passionate? Well, I uh, I was excited because I realized that uh, there is so much to do that. Uh, I was never in doubt that um, I would find uh, um, my path, right? Um, just knowing um, how much uh, we don't know about the brain, right? So that can be daunting. At the same time, it can be exciting because, you know, everything is to be done, right? So in that sense, I was not... Uh, 
scared at all. I was very excited. Uh, I mean, there is always uncertainty when you know being a postdoc. It's always difficult uh, because it's, it's like being an adolescent in science. Mm -hmm. you, you know, when you're a, when you're a child as a PhD student, you're protected. And when yeah. you're a faculty, you have some protection. But being a postdoc is probably the most difficult position in science. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but even then, you know. I was not anxious scientifically because I knew, as I know now, that there is so much to do. That, mm -hmm. you know. That's some great advice because a uh, like we have lots of listeners who are interested or curious about the field of data science, but they're actually in a different field right now themselves, whether um, they might be a developer or uh, they might be more into the statistics side of things, or they actually might be in a completely unrelated field, uh, creative field. And um, this is a great testament that indeed there is so much to do when there is so much to do and when you're really, truly passionate about the field. Um, there, you know, I like how you said that there is, you never had doubt that you will find your path. Sometimes the path isn't clear, you can't see it, but you just don't have the doubt that you'll find it. So I think that's uh, some inspiration for a listener. But right, so let me add, yep. let me add this, that um, whatever your background is, uh, in in this field of uh, neuroscience, psychology, psychiatry, uh, there is so much to do, and there are so many things that uh, you will find something that uh, will be your passion, right? Because it touches upon everything, right? Every human concern passes through the brain, right? So uh, doesn't matter what tools you have with you you will find the connection uh, with this field because it, you know, it is important for all of us, right? Mm -hmm. So if you talk about mental health, who doesn't have one person in the family or a friend who suffers mental health, right? And, uh, and like at that, like at that you, you can find uh, personal connections with this field uh, uh, for everyone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely true uh, indeed mental health is you know like i think indeed you say as you said maybe a family member a friend we all have somebody we know who might be uh, going through some issues but even on an individual level i find that we go through cycles as humans right like we feel good one day Absolutely. then bad like why why does that happen why why does uh, our brain i was watching one of your videos and i loved uh, one of the quotes that you said I think this is absolutely genius. Like, you you call the brain these two pounds of protein and water, right? Like, how why do these two pounds of protein and water do make us feel like that or like this? You know, why do we have mood swings? Why do we have good days and bad days? Why do we feel attracted to certain people and not attracted to others, or passionate about certain things and not passionate about others? Those things are still all unexplored, and it'd be really interesting to understand how all of that works. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's that's very exciting. Now, now, what I think would be important to mention at this point is how is data science in these days and technology in general? How is it helping in medicine? What is the link? What is the connection? So, um, for the benefit of our listeners, for instance, people who are into data science but have never worked in the uh, industry of healthcare or medicine. How can 
like what are the what is the potential for them to apply their skills in this industry right uh well i mean of course there are many directions right just thinking of um uh you know, traditional, let's call it traditional machine learning or AI approaches. Um, there is such a need to uh, combine information that is present in medical records, for instance. Uh, hospitals have these extensive uh, medical records going back decades that for the most part are just sitting uh, in servers, if not in, in, in drawers. And uh, uh, you know, we have, for instance, people here in the lab uh, working on that, just going over those records with current uh, computer science techniques and, and extracting patterns that are very relevant uh, for understanding the progression of a disease, right? Or understanding the probability that someone who uh, came to the hospital a few times will have a certain uh, event in the near future. Um, respect to, I can give you an example uh, 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 regarding uh, what we do in my group. Right? So, uh, for instance, <clears throat> we have a, a, a paper coming out, and, and actually we have presented this in conferences um, where we have patients who have Parkinson's disease and um, uh, they take uh, a particular drug, uh, levodopa, right? It's uh, something that uh, improves their symptoms in many cases. Not, not everyone responds to the drug, but many people do. And you want to know uh, what the effect is and, and what is the best time to take the drug for them. It's, and you, as a neurologist, you can see the patient once a month, in extreme cases, maybe once a week. Mm -hmm. But what happens in between with the patient? How do you reach the patient on a daily basis? Right. So uh, we showed in, in, in this paper that just by uh, recording their voice, uh, we can detect whether they have uh, the effect of L-DOPA or Levodopa on or they are off Levodopa uh, and with that we can track the effect throughout the day by just recording their voice in, uh, in a cell phone. Uh, it's very simple uh, technologically and, and the people who actually worked on, on this obtained the, the results um, have at the moment had no background whatsoever in neuroscience or psychiatry or neurology. They, you know, uh, they were computer scientists, uh, electrical engineers, right? and just by uh, applying data science to, to uh, extract features from the voice and learning uh, along, uh, you know, what are what it was known in the literature, that, but it was not formalized. They were able to uh, come up with this result, and and this is a direct uh, uh, application uh, that has immediate impact. Right? That something that we can use turn around uh, the traditional ways of doing mental health care 
by uh, uh, empowering these tools through uh, modern uh, uh, information technology, right? And really being able to access, to have a, a, a picture of your patient uh, on a daily basis. That's something that uh, it's uh, otherwise would be impossible. Right? So I think that that's a, a, an interesting, good example of uh, how you know bringing your your knowledge in data science and, and analytics. Uh, you can have an immediate impact uh, in this field. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, so just from the voice of a patient, you can extract certain insights about his mental health. Is that right? Yeah. So in this case, you know, you can think of in in, in a simple way. Uh, if you're taking a psychoactive drug, right? So a, a drug that has an an effect in your central nervous system naturally your voice will be affected, right? So mm -hmm. the, the, the nervous system controls your muscles and, and of course your, 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 the muscles that control voice will be affected. Uh, but also we extract information from language, right? from the, the, uh, the lexical content. So we extract information only from the voice and you know frequencies and the prosody, but from the content, right? So that uh, again, your central nervous system is affected. So of course, you might expect this, right? But uh, the fact that uh, these Parkinsonian patients uh, are on levodopa, so their symptoms are are improved, uh, it changes. For instance, uh, the uh, the way they retrieve uh, certain words, right? So the, it's more likely that, for instance, they will talk about verbs related to action and movement mm -hmm. than when they are, when there are symptoms which are manifested, among other things, in, in motor control, when their symptoms are, 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 are high, they're, they're more Parkinsonian, that tendency disappears right so just using in data science techniques we can capture that and measure it and and provide uh, a signet a, a, a metric of whether the, the drug is having a positive effect or not mm, okay gotcha gotcha uh, so and and can you talk about uh, a little bit about ibm watson here because i think that's a great another great example of how technology can be used in healthcare. So a couple of years ago, we heard some uh, breakthroughs where IBM Watson beat humans at the game of Jeopardy. And then there were some example case studies of how IBM Watson can predict certain things and actually better than doctors and faster than doctors because it has access to much more literature, much more materials and case studies. Um, what's going on with IBM Watson these days? Well, I... We cannot tell you much because, you know, I, uh, that is, um, let's say, the, the commercial offering part, and we are in research. So, uh, what goes into Watson, uh, in Watson Health in particular, are tools that have been uh, solid, solidly tested and, and, and questionable from the point of view of, of the clinical relevance. So what we are doing is we're creating the pipeline of the things that eventually uh, will end up 
in in Watson in Watson Health uh, in particular. We use some tools, right? So uh, <clears throat> speech recognition, for instance, uh, we use tools from Watson and uh, some of the uh, machine learning platform uh, built in, in Watson we also use, but what we are doing here in research is it's exactly, exactly that. Yes, we are doing basic research and out of that, what is really stable will eventually go into, into Watson. Okay, gotcha. So you're kind of like pushing the boundaries and exploring new exactly. ways. Mm. Exactly. Okay, okay, very interesting. All right, so we talked about uh, two main applications, so extracting data from medical records that there's plenty of, they're just sitting there and data science can really help with that, uh, and natural language processing, so uh, voice recognition and not just voice, but also, of course, the language, the way people, um, which words they use and so on to help monitor patient uh, situation. So it sounds like natural language processing is a, crucial component of the work that you're doing. Could you tell us a bit more about that? What what kind of uh, tools or algorithms do you see the field of healthcare using in terms of natural language processing? Okay, it's it's a very good question. So we, um, our approach is um, two-pronged. So one is the typical uh, data science approach, right? So you give me data from, like I said, you know, these uh, patients uh, that have taken uh, levodopa to improve their symptoms of uh, Parkinson's and and the same patients where they uh, they are not on the drug. And I will try to, you know, do a data-driven approach and create features and see what features are relevant and what features are not. Right? Um, that's one approach. The other approach, and, and I think this is interesting, is perhaps more interesting, uh, we try to work with uh, uh, psychiatrists and neurologists uh, to understand uh, what are the concepts, what are the ideas in some cases are, are explicit and in some cases are intuitive, that they use to judge uh, uh, a condition, to do a diagnosis, for instance, right? Um, and then we, turn, we try to turn those into algorithms. Right? So uh, one, uh, let me tell you one example that uh, has been very useful that we developed for one condition, but uh, now it's something that we use across the board. Mm -hmm. um, at some point, we uh, we realized that uh, for understanding psychosis, and that includes uh, schizophrenia and, and mania in the case of bipolar disorders, uh, a very important concept is uh, something that uh, in the field is called flight of ideas, and and you know the the name it's it's intuitive. So uh, these patients they tend uh, to be for instance, they are talking about a certain subject, all of a sudden, boom, they change the subject, sort of non sequiturs, and they're talking about something else, right? Mm -hmm. and, and that's, you know, it's, it's an essential component of the definition of what psychotic state is, 
So what we did was to use uh, uh, a technique that is uh, well established in natural language processing, that is semantic embedding that allows you uh, uh, to define uh, vectors uh, uh, as uh, the semantic content of a word. Right? So a, a word is represented by a vector, and if you want to know how similar two words are, instead of going to a thesaurus and see whether you know they are part of the same definition, you compare the vectors, and if the vectors are close, or oh, the semantic content of the word is is, uh, is similar, and, and this is based on uh, having computed statistics of co-occurrence. So the whole idea is if the two words tend to occur together, for instance, in, in passages, uh, they they are uh, semantic content is similar. And so we took that, which is used, uh, you know. On, on the daily basis in, in NLP. Um, and we created a measure of flight of ideas by saying, okay, so if in this phrase you the average semantic content is content is is one, and in the next phrase the semantic content is very different uh, because we can measure it then that's an indication of flight of ideas. So based on that, uh, we were able to show that it's possible to predict onset of psychosis in patients who have uh, sub-threshold symptoms, right? So they are called clinical high-risk uh, cohorts. And, you know, that's the, the interesting uh, aspect of it is that uh, this is the result of a dialogue with the psychiatrists that they know that this is important, but they know don't know how to turn that into something measurable that they can share with other psychiatrists evaluating other people, right? And and uh, what we brought from our side there is you know tools that are already available in NLP to create something new, right? Um, that, I mean, I, I think that's a, a good example of how we go about doing things. That's a fantastic example. And I've heard of that approach before where words are represented by vectors and uh, closeness means similarity of uh, semantics. That, and I can see now that maybe this is, yeah, this is exactly what, what you mentioned that you take processes or practices that psychologists already have and they're kind of more intuitive. They develop them over time. And now you're putting them into something more measurable, quantifiable, some algorithm that actually works. I think it's a, it's a whole art. And take, to say, take something that's intuitive and uh, works through experience, through knowledge. You know, the definition, one of the definitions of intuition I've heard is that it's uh, experience and knowledge that you have that you know how to use, but you cannot just describe and verbalize. Yeah, yeah. And so basically right. you're, you're creating algorithms that turn intuition or you're turning intuition into algorithms. I think that's, that's the next yeah. stage for data science, for artificial intelligence. Like how do we create machines that not just do like pre, are pre-programmed to do certain classifications or clustering and so on, but actually take something that's intuitive that you cannot even the person that does that 
that has that practice, they cannot explain it to you. How do you take that and put it into an algorithm? And that, and then that opens a whole new world because all of a sudden now you can apply it to mass scale. You can help many more people. You can combine the intuitive experiences and knowledge of different practitioners and see what you can come up with. So that's a really cool example of um, of how how you guys do this. Very interesting. So was this a recent research development that you guys came up with? Uh, it's something that uh, we published uh, uh, three years ago, more or less. Um, three years. And then, yeah, and then last year we we published uh, a follow up showing that uh, we can do this across uh, cohorts and even uh, the interview protocol. Right. So that's part of what we're trying to do. You know how. Trying to understand how universal these features are. So, if you interview uh, uh, a patient uh, with a certain protocol uh, under certain con- in a certain context, uh, you know, can you find information that is um, independent of that? That someone can use it uh, in a different context, in a different institution, in a different country, in a different language. Right? That's part of. Uh, uh, the goals that we set for ourselves. Okay, gotcha. And, um, yeah, very interesting. I actually, uh, I actually was reading a paper, not a paper, uh, an article recently, where they said that through machine learning, uh, I don't remember where it was, but it, it, this is the natural. So through deep learning, computer vision, machine learning. Uh, it's gotten to a stage that, and this is to do with um, teenagers who might be suffering depression. Through technology like that, we are able, there's certain, you know, certain breakthroughs recently that have enabled us to diagnose somebody who's suffering from depression at about an 80-something percent accuracy rate, which is even better than parents can diagnose their own children. Which is ridiculous, yeah. which is crazy. So, yes. yeah, it's um, yes. very exciting. Field. <clears throat> what I wanted to talk about next was some of the limitations. So, so this is something we chatted about just before the podcast. And you mentioned that one of the major problems that you are seeing is that there's not enough data. That Right now, there's paradoxically, there's more brain imaging data, which is very complex to obtain. There's more of it than speech samples. Speech samples of people uh, with mental illness or people that might that that uh, these algorithms can learn from and in order for you to turn these findings and these research papers into actual clinical tools you need larger data sets can you tell us a bit bit more about that why why is this a problem it's so surprising right like speech samples seem to be so easy to obtain compared to brain imaging why are there less of them um i think well uh couple of reasons. Well, one is that uh, until recently, um, you know, researchers and clinicians in mental health didn't think about the possibility of using uh, data-driven approaches or algorithmic approaches uh, to study uh, language production, to study interviews, uh, dialogue, etc. In some cases, uh, those interviews are recorded, but 
are recorded or recorded with the purpose of keeping a record, <laughs> not, mm. uh, for instance, with a good uh, audio quality, right? So in some cases, we cannot use the audio because the, the recording quality is really bad. And the other component of it is it's uh, uh, the issue of uh, privacy, right? So everyone is concerned with uh, the problem of uh, privacy and the possibility of identifying uh, someone who's suffering with a certain condition through their voice, and then um, you know there are all these uh, uh, safeguard mechanisms in place, and you know everyone is uh, afraid of being sued, and so <laughs> the lawyers step in and they say, well, you know, between having data in our servers that might be potentially identifiable and not having uh, that data, uh, not having is safer, right? Um, that it's, it's a problem, but at the same time, we have the technology to solve this problem, right? So everyone does uh, banking through their computers, right? And we are not afraid of uh, being, uh, 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 being hacked, although, you know, we are hacked. Uh, and, and rob of our, our savings. So it, it's it's a problem that can be solved, but uh, I think collectively we have to come to understanding that um, this is something that, that we need to do. And, 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 you know, we need to have the system in place so that uh, issues of privacy are, are solved, right? and they are solvable. That's my interpretation. Mm. Everything is, you, you don't need you don't only need just the um, the words, right? Like one thing is if you just needed the actual text spoken, then the audios could be converted to um, transcripts, transcribed, and then you can right. analyze those. You actually need the voice, right? You need the pattern. Well, the... you know, the voice ha contains and conveys a huge amount of information that uh, um, the written form um, only partially conveys, right? So prosody is very important, and I mean, you you can, you know, the whole point of sarcasm is, is that uh, you can there is a mismatch between the words you say and how you say them, right? Mm. And yeah, and there is a huge amount of uh, emotional content that is uh, conveyed primarily through prosody and not necessarily uh, through uh, the, the the word forms, right? Of course, I mean, we work with, with, with the transcript that uh, whenever we have access to uh, the sound files, uh, we see that uh, there is a huge amount of information that is there. And this is you know, it's important because it's part of the, as, as you were saying, of the intuition of someone who's doing a diagnosis of helping someone through therapy, uh, the uh, entire um, degrees of freedom of expressivity in language uh, in, involve, imply uh, the, the uh, acoustic uh, and prosodic component, right? There, it's very important. So, gotcha. Okay. All right. 
that's oh actually out of curiosity what uh so two questions what tools do you use to or like what what um approaches do you use to extract that information about the voice and so we talked a little bit about how you use yeah. sorry yeah uh, so um actually uh the first step is is uh, uh to build upon decades of uh, of research on uh, speech recognition right so uh, this is uh, a very well established field uh, um, and so we are using uh, some of the uh, basic low level features that uh, have been known to be very important to recognize voice to uh, identify for instance vowels and discriminate vowels and and um, concepts such as, you know, the the size of the space that uh, your vowels span is uh, important to discriminate um, different people, to discriminate uh, younger versus older, men versus women. So we we build upon, uh, like I said, decades of knowledge in, in terms of what are the basic features that are, are relevant for our uh, processing of, uh, of voice in particular, right? The human, human voice. Um, you know, there are very well-established tools to estimate uh, features related to uh, prosody at the level of uh, pauses, duration of words, right? Um, and again, those are most of those uh, uh, algorithms are readily available for anyone to use, right? Uh, uh, they're in Python, so you know you can have, uh, you can be playing with that uh, in in very little time. Right? You just download packages and start playing with it, and you know get a signal uh, related to, uh, for instance, the the uh, uh, pause distribution of someone who's speaking. Mm, okay, and so and so and that was my next question. Do you use Python for all this research? Well, for the most part, yes. For the most part, is is Python. Because um, now it's really uh, be, become has become the uh, the sort of lingua franca of uh, uh, computer science. Yeah. Okay, and so what role does do you see deep learning? playing in the space of voice recognition and in the, in the work that you're doing? Because you know, some of the models, as I understand, can be done absolutely without deep learning. What about uh, deep learning? Is there, a, is there room for deep learning type of feature? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, and um, we use, for some specific applications, uh, uh, deep learning, um, or at least uh, uh, a deeper neural networks, right? Um, as a way of incorporating, in particular, um, the idea that uh, meaning that we were talking about, you know, what is the meaning of a word? The meaning of a word uh, is only partially determined by the word form, right? So the context is important and 
in language, we, when you're conveying meaning, uh, the that meaning is distributed between the level of the word, the level of the sentence, uh, the level of a paragraph, right? And so this idea of uh, incorporating simultaneously different levels of abstraction uh, uh, suits very well uh, what you can do with uh, deep learning, right? Uh -huh. So, yeah, that's, you know, uh, from a purely data-driven approach, it's always important if you can, you know, if you have enough data to train a deep network, uh, it's typically beneficial, but from a more conceptual point of view, uh, it, it's particularly important uh, when we are talking about something that is inherently uh, multi-layered as, as, as language. All right. Okay. Thank you. That's, I think that's an important comment because uh, like deep learning is, um, a lot of people are learning deep learning and there's lots of different types of natural language processing. So it's good to know that all of them kind of have, have room in this space of healthcare. I wanted to ask yeah. you another question. I think, uh, you would be the, probably the best person out of everybody I know to ask this. What are your thoughts on Neuralink? You know, that whole, notion that Elon Musk is coming up with where um, they'll be connecting certain technologies directly to the brain. There'll be like a brain to uh, technology interface, something like that. And like that will expand our memory. Well, hopefully that will expand memories and how fast we think and things like that. Do you have an opinion about Neuralink? Oh, yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Would love to hear like from somebody who's I, doing I research. Know, I have to Close that uh, a very good friend of mine mm. is a director of that uh, enterprise. Wow! So it's, uh, we met in so we were together in, in grad school in the same lab. Mm -hmm. um, so my opinion. Well, um, we can talk about this forever, right? Uh, <laughs> For the time being, um, we don't really have um, a good way or any way, actually, to decode information from the brain uh, to transmit to another brain or, uh, or a machine other than language, right? Um, so, and, and the exception to this will be, of course, people who have lost limbs or lost movement. And then, you know, you can use this approach to control devices or to control a robotic arm or whatever. Um, so, for the time being, we, first of all, we don't have a theory of the brain, right? Not that I think we all agree beyond that, we are searching for a theory of the brain. So if you give me all the information on all the spikes uh, and all the synaptic weights and everything uh, at, a, you know, millisecond or something rate from the brain, I don't know what to do. Right? Mm -hmm. I can do a few things, right? But uh, can I uh, decode uh, 
you know, the brain of a, of a, uh, of a writer and transcribe what the writer is thinking into a book. No, we cannot do that. Right? So, you know, evolution found a very good way of doing this uh, through language and through some other mechanisms of communication right, that include, include uh, body movement, facial movement, uh, and a few pheromones and a few other things. Um, at the same time, um, uh, there are things that can be done at the low level, right? So we can have a direct connection uh, uh, conveying relatively simple signals. And that, I think, the value of that is you know, pushing the boundaries, understanding what's possible, and forcing us to think about along these lines, along the lines of, well, what do we know about the brain? What information can we extract from a few uh, neurons and a few spikes? So I think it's extremely valuable uh, from the point of view of pushing the boundary. Uh, but uh, in, in practical terms, I don't see much except for applications to people who have, again, lost limbs or, or lost movements. Um, at the same time, <clears throat> conceptually, I think there is something that is coming, right? So there is a convergence. We are converging uh, between humans and machines, right? So I spent most of my day, of my day surrounded by computers. You know, the last, uh, I know, one of the last things that I do before uh, going to bed is, you know, check my my cell phone and then, you know, my cell phone is my alarm and you know, the first thing that I do when I wake up is, you know, touch my cell phone, <laughs> right? So it's, you know, our, our connection with electronic media, it, it's ever stronger and actually, you know, computers in a way are mimicking our nervous system. Right? So it's digital and it's, like, you know, it's electronic. Uh, so that conversion is happening. Now, uh, we are still very far and, and I don't expect any uh, clear uh, advances uh, from this approach, except understanding what are the limitations, right? Mm. So do you think it's it's good or bad that we're so connected with technology these days? Because if you if we think about it, like you said, the only way we can express what is happening in our brains is through um, our senses or like actually like, sorry, spoken language or touch and things like that. So in essentially our mobile phones are already an extension of us like before exactly. like let's say 10, 10 20 years ago i i didn't walk around on this like just like walking uh, to you know school or whatever i didn't carry all of the dictionaries and all of the world's knowledge with me in my pocket and so if somebody asks me a question I, and i don't know i don't know but now i just open my phone and i look it up on google and there's you go there's the answer so essentially it is an extension of our minds. It's just a very slow interface, you know, like the typing, your fingers, the looking at the answer with your eyes, the processing of it. It's a very slow interface, but it's already an extension. 
what Neuralink is proposing is to create that interface that's going to make it really fast, that it's, it's directly linked to the brain. And as you mentioned, we don't have answers how to do that yet. But in general, philosophically, is this whole idea of extending ourselves into machines, is it good or is it bad? Are there any dangers associated with that from, from your standpoint, from your professional point of view? I wouldn't say professional, just personal, um, because this you know goes beyond uh, any particular profession. I, I don't, you know, is evolution good or bad? You know, I think that this is not good or bad. This is inevitable, right. and you know, we didn't choose to become human when we were uh, primates, and we. We are not choosing this. This is happening in spite of us. I mean, there is uh, no uh, evil or, you know, for that matter, for that matter, good uh, genius orchestrating this. It's part of evolution. I mean, it's, uh, uh, you know, we started with the cave and, and the cave was an extension of the body or if you wish the uterus of our mother as a protection, and then we use tools uh, as an extension of our hands, and this is an extension of our central nervous system, and <clears throat> it's inevitable. I mean, this it is not good and bad, and there is always this question every time there is a new technology: is it good or bad? And you know, I always like to remind everyone that uh, Socrates, of all people, was against the written word. Right, because he thought that it softened the brain. Because, you know, uh, until then Homer could recite uh, two entire sagas uh, uh, out of uh, memory, and now no one can do that because we just go out and, and read. Until recently, we read the book. Now, you know, maybe <laughs> I don't know what we're gonna do. Right, we have it in our computer, and we don't read it. Uh, so. Every change in technology uh, brings about uh, these changes that some people consider good or bad. They're inevitable. I mean, that's we we can minimize the the bad side effects, but we cannot. We have to admit that this is happening, right? And and uh, you cannot really stop it. It's 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 again, it's like evolution. Mm. No one is pushing it. it. We we like it, and the fact is that it's so close to us intuitively, right? That because it's an extension of our of our central nervous system, so it's very natural. It's like you know, you give me a third arm, and after a while, I'll be I'll start used to use it, right? Now. So this is the same thing. It you know, is there? You're gonna use it, and you want more because it's it's part of I mean, it's really very close to us right, in many ways. Okay, okay, I see. I see your point. I've never thought of it as evolution. I always thought of it as like something different because evolution usually takes longer time. But nevertheless, I wanted to ask you then this: Don't you think it's happening a bit too fast? That you know, we with all those other examples, whether it's speech, written text, tools in our hands, we had time to adapt to them, and they weren't as life-changing for us. Whereas now, 
the amount of technological progress that's happened in the past 10 years is more than has has happened ever in the human history. And what we're seeing is things are starting to pop up that are affecting our 2 million year old brain in ways that we just don't, we would never expect. For instance, you know, the whole notion of uh, social media, right? Like when when, uh, you get a uh, a reply on Facebook or on WhatsApp or on whatever else, Instagram, you look at it and that causes um, certain hormones, I think endorphins to be yeah. produced in your brain. And th- that's, that's uh, you know, it's actually the same process happening in your brain as when you're gambling or when you're drinking alcohol. But we have age restrictions on both of those, like uh, alcohol and gambling. There's certain ages until which you can't do it. And uh, there's nothing like that on social media. So children are getting affected by that. They're getting addicted to social media simply because it's been, you know, it's only been introduced in the past couple of years. And it's been so quick that legislation hasn't been able to keep up to speed. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, well, you know, again, I'm, I'm not advocating the use of social media and I don't use social media. And uh, for a while I was using... Um, a, a book tablet like a Nook, or uh, I was using Nook. Oh yeah, 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 the uh, one that blocks blocks right. also. I was using Nook to read novels, and even even that I I dropped, and I back to uh, the old uh, fashioned uh, uh, paper book. Hmm. Um, but so yeah, I think you know there are things that are that are clearly uh, 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 not good in general. But at the same time, you know, you're saying, you know, changes are occurring very fast. Well, you know, um, when we invented bronze, uh, the poor people who uh, had uh, uh, not bronze were wiped out. Right? We <laughs> yeah. killed them. And then when we invented iron, we killed uh, those who had bronze. And then when we invented the written word, and we we have we were able to create organize you know states organized uh, around books and and uh, written principles. Those are those states wiped out uh, the older uh, tribes and civilizations. So you know this you know it happened many times before, right? And yeah. uh, disruptive technology uh, is not new. And 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 also, let me remind you that we invented uh, nuclear bombs a few decades ago, and and we were able to minimize. Right? It could have been much worse. Right? Um, so, of course, this is very it's it's dramatic and it's fast, but it's not any it's not anything new. I mean, this is part of human history. Okay. Very. Very interesting uh, point of view. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Gisharma. We're on that note, we're actually coming to the end of the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing all your insights with you, with us and all your opinions. Uh, before I let you go, what's the best way for our listeners to contact you? Maybe if somebody's interested in your research, uh, you're in New York, I remind if maybe somebody wants to catch up and talk more about, you know, like potentially collaborating or or even just follow your work and career? What, what are some of the best ways to do that? Uh, email or 
for the time being. Yeah. So gotcha. just reach out and yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll so I'm, you know, like everyone, I'm overwhelmed with uh, things to do and email, etc. But um, I always try to answer. All right, sounds good. So is it okay for us to share your email in the show notes? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Sounds good. And what about LinkedIn? Uh, is that is that a place where people can connect with you as well? Uh, yeah. I, you know, I don't. I try to minimize uh, that with, uh, you know, using email. So email, if possible. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So I don't, I don't get uh, too many distractions. All right. Like yeah, uh, like you said. With, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. Gotcha. Okay, and uh, one final question for you today: What's a book that you can recommend to our listeners that uh, can potentially impact them or their careers? Well, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not doing uh, anything related to what's in the book that I will mention, but um, it had a tremendous impact in my outlook. Uh, scientific outlook and it's a book by Stephen Jay Gould so anything that Stephen Jay Gould wrote was fantastic he was an incredible writer uh, but this book is about um, uh, uh, a discovery of uh, uh, the um, fossil records of the Precambric era where there's an, there was an explosion in forms of life and uh, the way uh, he describes the discovery and weaves the theory of evolution around it and the task of a scientist, uh, it's just phenomenal. Um, I think it's called, uh, uh, it's a wonderful life uh, and it's, uh, it's about the Vargas shale in Canada. Uh, but if you can have any book uh, by uh, Stephen Jay Gould, it's probably one of the best writers of uh, of popular science. He was a real scientist, and I was a, he was a, a wonderful writer. So that's awesome. my recommendation. I think I found it online. It's called "Wonderful Life: The Burgess Shale and the Nature of History" by Stephen Jay Gould. Right. Awesome. Okay. Well, on that note, once again, Gishermo, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your insights and telling us about the brain, how data and space and healthcare. Thank you very much. Okay. Bye-bye. So there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. That was Dr. Gishermo Cheki from IBM Research. I hope you got some valuable takeaways from this podcast. And it was very interesting to see how research has progressed and how much insights and data and information about patients can be extracted simply from voice samples, from the tonalities of their voices and the words that they're saying and it can actually help people get better so it's really cool to see data science applied to help people to uh, improve people's lives and especially help people with uh, mental disorders and my personal favorite parts of this podcast was probably when dr cheki was talking about how they their approach of Uh, presenting words as vectors is one of the ways that they can accomplish transferring intuitive knowledge of professionals 
something that they cannot that, that they use that uh, people and doctors in the space that they have this knowledge they use but they cannot verbalize they cannot just explain how it is how that um, knowledge is actually helpful for them in terms of uh, diagnosing patients well this approach that Dr. Cechi described is taking that intuitive knowledge and putting it into an algorithm. That's, uh, for me, that's a next level of um, technology or uh, data science, machine learning, artificial intelligence, when you can actually encode not just simple rule-based logic, but intuitive knowledge that is so hard to verbalize and communicate even between people. And by putting it into an algorithm, that opens up huge new possibilities. On that note, if you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to get in touch with Dr. Cechi, you can find all of the details, including his email and um, other things that we mentioned on the podcast, such as additional materials and the transcript for this episode at www.superdatascience.com slash 241. That's superdatascience.com slash 241. So make sure to reach out to Dr. Cheki if this is a field that interests you or you have some of your own ideas and thoughts on this topic. On that note, thank you so much for being here today. I look forward to seeing you next time. And until then, happy analyzing. <laughs>